Our next uh, presenter is a fairly recent addition to uh, Cato's uh, staff of policy experts, and she focuses on public opinion and understanding uh, voter behavior. PhD is from UCLA in political science. She's worked on public opinion polling. You have the information in the bio. One of the things that I think is most interesting is her collaboration with a psychologist, Jonathan Haidt, author of a really wonderful book, The Righteous Mind. It was very much an eye-opener for me to understand the uh, psychological uh, bases of modern populism and what is happening in the American polity. So, Emily. Well, it's great to be here. I remember attending Cato University in 2007, so it's fun to be able to join again and be able to present some of the results of the research that we're conducting here at the Cato Institute. Um, to start with, I think we can all agree that this election has been nuts. <laughs> um, things that we never thought possible have been happening. Um, and the two major parties have somehow I guess I need to be over here where the microphone is, sorry. Um, the two major parties have found themselves in a situation where they have nominated um, two candidates that are disliked at historic levels. 538 analyzed the data and found that no candidates have been this disliked um, in recent memory. Um, excuse me here. And particularly um, on the Republican side, I don't think we've ever seen kind of the GOP elite um, or kind of the inner circles of Republicans just so distraught over a presidential candidate. And as a result, we are seeing Americans who are much more open to thinking about something different. Um, according to a recent uh, Wall Street Journal NBC poll, nearly half of Americans say they would consider voting for a third party candidate in the 2016 election. Now, these are always exaggerated. People aren't actually going to vote at that high level, but it just shows that there is this, um, there is this hunger for something different. 48% said they would consider voting for a fiscally conservative, socially liberal candidate, which actually doesn't fit either of the two major party candidates. Um, and 60% of Republicans now say they would have preferred a different nominee other than Trump. So a, minor, a minority of Republicans put Trump in that position that he's in, and uh, many are feeling regret. Um, see. So part of the problem is that the conventional wisdom in American politics is flawed. Um, the conventional wisdom holds that there's really only two groups. There's just liberals and there are conservatives. There are Democrats and there are Republicans. And in this election, we're starting, people are starting to say, these two candidates don't represent me. Liberals, conservatives, however you're defining them, doesn't represent my views. Um, and so um, this is leading us to kind of rethink the current model. So like right now, people think you're either a liberal, meaning you tend to prefer um, more government involvement in, econ in economic affairs and regulatory affairs, but also you're more tolerant of diverse lifestyles, conservatives. Um, the con conventional wisdom is that you say that you like limited government, but that you also want government to promote traditional values. And a lot of people don't fit either of those two molds. I think many people in this room probably don't feel like they fit either of those two molds. I think that part of the problem is that we've confined people to just one dimension, this left-right dimension. 
But what if we were to offer people, what if we were able to examine the electorate in a new way? How many people are familiar with the Nolan chart? Nolan chart? I think a lot of people are. So I'm going to show you something similar to the Nolan chart. Instead of doing just the traditional left-right continuum that we're familiar with in American politics, every time you turn on CNN and Fox, they always have to have a liberal strategist and a conservative strategist and nobody else. Um, instead of doing that, what if we thought of one dimension just being economic affairs? This is about government intervention in the economic sphere. So on the left, it would be more government redistribution, bigger government. To the right, less redistribution, smaller government. And what if we added a second dimension? This would be a dimension that defines government intervention in um, social and personal affairs. So here at the bottom, this would be those who prefer government to play less of a role in intervening in um, kind of personal choices. They don't want government to promote traditional values and emphasis on social tolerance. Um, whereas you go to the top, that, is, that defines voters who care, who believe government should be promoting traditional values, and they really emphasize group cohesion over individual autonomy. Um, and when you do that, it allows us to recover our two regular groups of liberals and conservatives, you know, liberals that um, want more government, gov uh, government redistribution and government not to promote traditional values, and in the conservative bucket, those that want um, less government redistribution but think government should promote traditional values and group cohesion. But then we can add two new additional groups, um, libertarians, those that are more fiscally conservative and then socially liberal. And then this fourth group we don't talk about as much, but they exist. Um, you could call them communitarian. I think technically, the, the more technical term is statist. Um, but that sounds so pejorative. Um, I, I even looked it up in the dictionary to make sure it, it is actually correct. Um, those that think government, who, who prefer, per, uh, prefer economically progressive policies, but also want government to promote traditional values. Um, so we've got, at least in theory, these four groups. There could be more. You could add a foreign policy dimension. You could add an infinite number of dimensions, and you can get lots of different clusters. But this is just one way, I think, we can to improve our understanding of the electorate to at least consider these four groups instead of merely two. OK, so how many people exist in these four groups? If you happen to read Paul Krugman's op-ed page in the New York Times, um, you, may, you may have seen that he argued that there really aren't any libertarians out there. There aren't any communitarians either. He called them, quote, hard hats. Um, he said, really, they're only liberals and conservatives. No one really exists in those other buckets. And that's why the two political parties today only look the way they do. How could we measure this? There are many different ways we can measure this. Um, some are more complicated statistical algorithms. Um, a more straightforward and simple approach, one that um, Nate Silver has used at 538, is to just look at how people answer two basic questions. Um, and, the, and the idea behind it is, what should government's role be when it comes to social and personal affairs? And what should government's role be when it comes to economic affairs? Two separate questions, and see if people answer in a more or less consistent fashion. So for instance, one question that we, these two questions, we always include on our Cato Institute national surveys when we partner with YouGov, um, when we do our national surveys. This first one asks, should government promote traditional values or not? 
And then the second question on economic affairs is, if you had to choose, would you rather have a smaller government providing fewer services or a bigger government providing more services? Sorry about that. <laughs> the latter is what everyone wishes were. Yeah, OK. Um, anyway. Number two is true. Fair point. Fair point. That's what seems to happen. Um, OK. So these are questions that are standard questions that have been asked by Pew and Gallup and academic researchers. So we're not, besides my, my typo there, we're not stacking the deck. These are standard questions that people use. OK, so if let's look at a survey. How did people answer these questions? What percentage of people fit the four buckets? It's actually pretty evenly distributed. Now, according to the Paul Krugman model, it would just be the conservative red bucket and the liberal blue bucket. But you see, there's almost equal shares uh, compared to liberals in the libertarian and status communitarian buckets. Attitudes are actually pretty evenly distributed out there. What makes the difference is which political parties mobilize which voters. Who takes the driver's seat in a particular political party? And right now, we're definitely seeing more of the conservative, liberal, authoritarian strains taking the driver's seat in the political parties. But that doesn't mean that they are a majority. It just means they're taking the driver's seat. Now, you could also say, well, maybe these questions aren't the best. Um, people aren't that consistent. And that's true. People are not um, perfectly consistent, and that's to be expected. But let's ask several questions and see if people more or less give consistent answers. And when we do that, here's what we find. So 20% kind of gave inconsistent answers in the middle, um, but still pretty equal groups between the four buckets. And so today, I'm going to go through and compare the responses between libertarians, conservatives, liberals, and communitarians. And we're going to explore the differences and similarities between them. So we're going to look at how they vote, their demographics, their partisanship, where they stand on issues, their child-rearing values, which I think are particularly interesting, and then their moral foundations using the theory developed by Jonathan Haidt, which Tom mentioned earlier today. To start with, let's look at their past voting behavior. You'll notice a pattern here. When asked about favorability toward Mitt Romney, you see, liberals and communitarians tend to have an un had an unfavorable view of him back in 2012. Conservatives had a favorable view, but libertarians were evenly divided. Half and half liked him, half, the other half didn't like him. And this is actually a pretty consistent pattern that we see in the data. If you look at 2000, the, the 2014 midterms and which candidate they were planning to vote for, the Democratic candidate or the Republican candidate, we see that the Democratic Party sort of owns, I guess you would say, the liberal and the communitarian buckets when it comes to voting. But, and, and the Republican Party tends to, quote, own the conservative bucket, but no one really has captured the libertarian bucket. They're kind of up for grabs. They're in the middle. Um, and it's not just a fluke. It's not just Mitt Romney. It's not just 2012. We found it in 2014. We asked people about their level of satisfaction with the quality of their candidates at the congressional level, the state level, and the local level, and we see this exact same pattern. Libertarians are the least satisfied with the candidates they have for office. And it's not because there aren't any libertarians out there and thus they can't um, propel someone to office. It's that they haven't yet been mobilized, is my argument. Um, 
So let's fast, let's move ahead to 2016. We're going to go through each of the different groups and their, their preferred vo vote choice as of November 2015 when we did one of these surveys. What I like about having done this survey in November of 2015 was that there were so many candidates out there. It really gave people an opportunity to express kind of their, their, their very like kind of narrowly defined preferred candidate. So who do they go for? Um, we see that libertarians are pretty across the board. We've got Donald Trump, Ted Cruz, Rand Paul. You see them all over there. But one quarter of libertarians, you may know, say that they're willing to vote for a Democratic candidate. Let's compare them to conservatives. Conservatives actually aren't that much more likely to say, at least back in November, that they um, preferred Donald Trump. But the big difference is conservatives were more likely to say they wanted to vote for Ted Cruz, and libertarians were more likely to say they wanted to vote for Rand Paul. Looking at the liberal and communitarian buckets, we see another interesting pattern. You'll notice that the liberal group prefers Bernie Sanders. The communitarians prefer Hillary Clinton by a long shot. If you notice the communitarians, there are more people, more communitarians that like Donald Trump than Bernie Sanders. That tells you a lot about what their values are and what issue positions matter to them, um, and also the fact that liberals um, more preferred Bernie Sanders than the eventual um, nominee. And it tells us something about why Hillary is the nominee. It's because communitarians were so much behind her candidacy early on. Now, um, we resurveyed, uh, I do sorry, um, there's computer problems. <laughs> when we resurveyed back in um, about a few weeks ago, we found that people had shifted in their attitudes towards the presidential candidates. The one thing we noticed is that libertarians did not shift in support for Donald Trump, despite him being the nominee. So there does seem to be this contingency of libertarians that like Donald Trump, and nobody else does. Um, and they like him. They're probably not going to change their minds. But the rest aren't going to fall into line. Um, conservatives, however, significantly increase their support for Donald Trump. So we do see kind of a more partisan unity falling into line, get behind the candidate that represents your party on the conservative side, and then also the liberal side, we saw the, we saw the same thing. I wish there was a way to, sorry, the screen is distorted, so I cannot see half of what's on here. Um, okay, looking at their partisanship, we see a similar pattern to what we saw with their voting behavior. It maps on pretty well. Um, liberals and communitarians tend to identify as Demo or they identify as Democrats. Conservatives identify as Republicans, um, indicated by the taller red bar on conservative. Communitarian or libertarians. I see that those numbers have disappeared for some reason, um, but uh, libertarian was only about 47 percent. Republicans. So again, we see the same thing. Um, they are not solidly in the Republican camp. They're not solidly in the Democratic camp. There's definitely a lean um, toward Republicans, but it's not that significant. Either party could pick them up. And if they did, they'd probably improve their, um, elect uh, their election returns. So let's think about their demographics. Okay, libertarians. They tend to be the most male group of all four. Um, they're close to the national average on race. Um, they're actually very diverse. Um, there's a stereotype that that's not the way it is, but at least from what we've seen across numerous polls, particularly among millennials, very diverse. Age trends younger, less religious. Um, and libertarians, conservatives, and liberals all have about the same level of education. Um, conservatives are also slightly more male, but not as much as libertarians. 
They're the least racially diverse, um, older, more religious. Liberals are our youngest group. They're slightly more female. Their, ra their racial demographics is, are also close to the national average. They're also less religious. Um, communitarians are interesting. They're the most female, um, the most racially diverse, average age distribution, but they have the least amount of education. Six in 10 have not attended college. So we do see some significant differences between these groups in their demographics. But I think what's most important is to look about what, how they stand on the issues, what they think about economics, social um, and personal freedom, immigration, foreign policy, um, and criminal justice. So moving forward, even though the screen is distorted, I really wish it wasn't. If there's anyone that has suggestions in the back. Um, OK. So first, how do they perceive the economic system to actually work? Um, this isn't about what you think ought to be, but what you think actually is. Now, there's one thing that we talk a lot about in American politics, the American dream, that hard work pays off. That's one thing I have some good news. All four groups, majorities, like six in 10, agree that hard work is what brings success to most people in America today. There isn't disagreement about that, but where we do see disagreement is here. Does a rising tide lift all boats? We ask people, do people generally get rich at the expense of others? Or can wealth grow so there's more for everyone? So it's basically asking, is wealth a zero-sum game? We see that libertarians and conservatives are very similar on this question. They think wealth can grow. But liberals and communitarians think that it is a zero-sum game, that people get rich at the expense of others, which makes sense. Bernie Sanders' message makes a lot more sense among that view. A similar. Okay, um, we'll skip through the next one. There's also um, a, difference in, a difference in opinion about the poor, the poor getting out of poverty. Liberals and communitarians tend to believe that the poor don't have a good shot of getting out of poverty. Libertarians and conservatives are actually evenly divided, so they're, they're not total po polar opposites like we see here. But in general, conservatives and libertarians tend to think that the system have an optimistic view of America's economic system, whereas liberals and communitarians do not. And that is reflected in the next group of data that we're going to be looking at, attitudes towards economic policy. So this is, okay, shifting away from what people think actually is the case, we're looking at what people think should be the case. Socialism. What do people think about socialism? We see a similar pattern here that liberals, excuse me, that um, libertarians and conservatives are very similar in being very unfavorable towards socialism. Whereas liberals, they're the only group in which a majority actually have more, are more favorable than unfavorable to socialism. And communitarians are pretty evenly divided. Um, in fact, liberals were as likely to say they like socialism as capitalism. 53%. And, and they're not all different people. There are, a lot of them are the same people, which shows that there is a different conception about what socialism means among many liberals. Um, I'm hoping that we'll start to see a pattern as we go through this data. Once again, on this economic issue about government regulation, libertarians and conservatives are in almost unanimous universal agreement that government regulation of business often does more harm than good whereas liberals and communitarians are flipped in that they think government should be doing more to regulate businesses. 
The pattern I'm hoping you'll notice is that on these economic issues, we tend to notice that libertarians and conservatives go together, whereas um, communitarians and liberals go together over here. This one I thought was kind of fun. Bank bailouts for Wall Street. Looking back on the 2000 financial, uh, 2008 financial crisis, do you think it was the right or the wrong thing to bail out the financial institutions who were in trouble? Now, the reason I find this funny is that we know that the liberal group really likes Bernie Sanders, that he was their preferred candidate, and he's talked a lot about um, Wall Street. However, liberals were evenly divided about whether or not they should bail out the banks. Um, it was libertarians and conservatives that were the most opposed to those bank bailouts. And the only group, interestingly, are communitarians that actually supported the bank bailouts. This is a trend that maps, I mean, it maps on to the earlier questions that we, that we asked. Um, should government have a stronger role to play in society overall? Communitarians are the most likely to support that view. Um, Entitlement reform. You don't need to read all of the, I, I have the question on the screen just for, just for being precise, but you don't need to read the whole question. Um, but essentially, do you favor or oppose transitioning the Medicare system to a voucher system? We presented uh, costs and benefits of doing so. And we see, again, conservatives and libertarians line up in favor of Medicare, of switching to Medicare credits or vouchers, and liberals and communitarians opposed to such reform, um, to that kind of reform. So, excuse me. So overall, across these economic issues, I mean, I have so many, so much other data that I'm not including here because it's just too much. But just to kind of give you an overview, when it comes to tax rates, the flat tax, um, Medicare, Medicaid vouchers, um, libertarians and conservatives um, support all of those things, and liberals and communitarians oppose. So there's definitely this pattern on economics: who lines up with who. All right, so that's kind of the conventional wisdom often. People tend to assume that libertarians are very similar to conservatives, largely because of those economic issues. But the next slides I'm going to show you are going to show a very different pattern. Personal freedom and social issues. I didn't know the best way to categorize all these different questions, so it's kind of going in this general bucket. It's kind of about how do you think about individual autonomy. Bitcoin. Who's familiar with Bitcoin? Who's heard of it? OK, I guess this is the type of room that has heard about Bitcoin. Um, <laughs> A lot of people haven't heard of it. But what I love about this question is that it's new, it's unproven, it's unregulated, it's untested. What's your gut instinct? When you first hear about Bitcoin and someone explains it to you, like on a survey, which we did, we explained it before we asked this question, what is your gut reaction? Is your gut reaction to regulate and control, or is your reaction to just let it be? We see that majorities of libertarians and a plurality of liberals say that the government should allow people to use Bitcoin, whereas it's conservatives and particularly communitarians who oppose allowing people to use Bitcoin. So I think that tells us a little bit about that gut instinct when it comes to something that's new and different. Marijuana, this is probably no surprise, where libertarians and liberals are also, and even communitarians, are similar in supporting the legalization of marijuana and treating it or regulating it like alcohol. Um, conservatives are the only group that oppose legalizing uh, marijuana. This is probably the reason why we're going to legalize marijuana very soon, in that you can't maintain this kind of, this level of prohibition um, when you only have one of four that are strongly opposed to it. 
Protecting morality in society, should government be doing more or less to protect morality? Um, majorities of libertarians, conservatives, and liberals all think government has gotten too involved in morality, except for one group, communitarians. Communitarians think that government ought to be doing more to promote mor morality in society. Now, they're only one of four, so we're not going to see a lot of movement on that issue, but I think it tells you a lot about how those different groups think about issues and their values. Immigration. Similar to what we saw on issues of social or individual autonomy, libertarians are a lot more like uh, liberals and communitarians in that they favor a pathway to citizenship for um, undocumented or unauthorized immigrants, um, whereas a majority of conservatives oppose um, that kind of a policy. So what we've seen thus far, economic issues, social, economic issues, libertarians and conservatives are similar. But on social issues, immigration, we're seeing that libertarians are a lot more like liberals on, mon uh, on many of these questions. What about foreign policy? Sometimes people think of libertarians as being doves on foreign policy. And when you ask questions about cutting defense spending, we do see a little bit um, of evidence for that in which libertarians Majorities of libertarians and liberals support cutting defense spending to help balance the budget. Uh, conservatives are the most opposed. So this is something that causes um, kind of a lot of strife um, as people are talking about how to balance the budget. Are there sacred cows in which we never cut the defense or defense spending? Um, or is that also on the table? But while libertarians and liberals are similar in this regard and libertarians appear more dovish, they are not total doves. When it comes to certain things, libertarians are willing, in the way we've constructed libertarian, um, are willing to support intervention abroad. What if Iran was capable, uh, what if Iran was about to develop a nuclear weapon? Should the US send ground troops? Uh, ground troops to try to destroy or delay such a program. We actually see majorities of libertarians and conservatives favoring such an approach, whereas liberals are the only ones to oppose sending ground troops. So I think that's an important distinction is that there is definitely skepticism among the libertarian contingency when it comes to foreign intervention, but they're not complete doves as liberals tend to be more like that. Criminal justice. This is an issue that's only recently, I feel like, really made a debut on the national stage where we're talking about it a lot more than we used to. Militarized police. Do you think local police departments ought to use armored vehicles and military weapons for just ordinary, regular law enforcement purposes? Um, we see that libertarians are more similar to liberals in, such, in that they oppose the mil uh, they oppose police using such military weapons, whereas conservatives, a majority of conservatives and communitarians, slim majorities, actually favor and think that such equipment is necessary for the routine duties of police officers. Um, You'll notice across a variety of questions, libertarians and conservatives tend to be more similar in when you, excuse me, libertarians and liberals are more similar when you ask them about how police ought to be. Um, ought they use military weapons or should they not do that? But when you ask them about perceptions of how it actually is, 
Then we see libertarians are more similar to conservatives, which has an implication for reform. Um, if you think that there's a problem or not, libertarians and conservatives tend to think that there are not, that there's not systematic problems in the system, whereas liberals and communitarians think that there is. So an example of this would be, do you think the police are too quick to use deadly force, or do they typically only use deadly force when necessary? Um, and I think what this is really getting at is when you see videos on TV of police officers behaving badly, is that just an isolated incident? And so, like, yes, there are a few bad apples that we should correct those individual people. Or do you think that it is a pattern, it is representative of a pattern of, a, of systemic problems that is in need of reform? So in that regard, libertarians and conservatives tend to be more similar, and liberals and communitarians think that there is a problem in need of fixing. Okay, before we go through surveillance, to summarize thus far, economics, libertarians, conservatives, very similar, but on Foreign policy on criminal on many excuse me for, foreign policy socialists and immigration we see that libertarians are actually a lot more like liberals on those questions surveillance however libertarians stand alone there is no one that is as skeptical as that um, bucket of libertarians. When we asked, um, after the revelations from Edward Snowden about domestic surveillance in this country, we asked Americans about the program to collect phone call records and internet data on millions of Americans, and if, if they thought this was necessary to fight terrorism or was it a violation of privacy. Libertarians are the most likely group to feel like um, this program was a, or is a violation of their privacy. And libertarians are the only group in which a majority say that they, they, that they do not trust the NSA at all to protect their privacy, um, followed by conservatives, liberals, and communitarians. Now, to some degree, I think liberals would be more skeptical if there was a Republican president. Um, <laughs> but um, it's interesting that libertarians, nonetheless, are the most skeptical. And I think that that's something important to see, that that's kind of a a wedge issue um, that cross cuts and really uh, kind of speaks to that libertarian bucket. Um, I like this question that we asked about, should the police be allowed to search the houses of people who might be sympathetic to terrorists without a court order? We asked a lot of different questions about um, circumstances under which a police officer should be allowed to search a pe person's house without a warrant. Um, and we asked this because this really gets us concerned and scared. Um, terrorists, that's scary. So would we be willing to kind of bend the rules a little bit to have a police officer search that person's house even without a court order? Big differences. Libertarians are the most likely group to oppose that kind of a warrantless search. Liberals do too, but by not as much as you would have, I, I would have expected. And majorities of conservatives and particularly communitarians um, say that that should be allowed. And I think this is important as we have this debate and discussion, as we balance competing priorities of safety and security and, uh, and liberty, privacy, um, and the safety of innocent people, those, um, we're going to see these groups kind of fight it out in different ways, with libertarians and conservatives being at odds on this particular question, and liberals and communitarians also being at odds. Okay, so we've talked about the issues. We see that sometimes libertarians and conservatives go together. Sometimes libertarians and, and liberals go together. They don't fit that traditional mold. Same thing with communitarians. Sometimes communitarians and conservatives are similar. And sometimes communitarians go with liberals. 
And a lot of times, communitarians kind of stand out as being very, very different. They're the only group that favors government intervention in a variety of different circumstances. Okay. How do you teach your kids? I think this is a really interesting question because the values that you teach your kids, I think, tell us a lot about your political priorities. Um, I've often heard of kind of fights on the playground as parents um, kind of disagree about how um, to deal with their kids, interacting with other kids. Um, and I think it tells us a lot about their political priorities. Trophies. Um, I'm definitely part of the generation where everyone got a trophy, regardless of our achievements. Um, and surprisingly, we were the only poll that has ever asked this question. I've checked the database. Um, do you think all kids who play sports should, re should receive a trophy for their participation, or should only the winning players be awarded trophies? Now, I don't know if this makes you feel better or worse, but 57% of Americans said only the winners should get trophies, um, although that's not how it's enacted. Uh, you know, among uh, kids' sports teams, we see libertarians and conservatives overwhelmingly say that only the winners should get trophies. Liberals, they, they lean in that direction. A slim majority lean in that direction. Communitarians, no. All kids should get a trophy. Now, if you remember some of, I, I know I showed you a lot of data, but if you remember some of the data that I showed, communitarians were the most likely group to support government intervention in the economic sphere, the social sphere, um, surveillance, foreign policy, they were the most likely group of the four, and they're the only group that said that all kids should get trophies. Now, if you look at this question, it highly, highly correlates with attitudes towards capitalism and socialism. It highly, highly correlates with whether you think we should have a large government that offers more services or a smaller government that offers fewer services. So this question about how you raised your kids correlates so strongly with these very big, important um, political questions and economic questions that we're asking ourselves to what extent are we teaching our kids values by giving everyone a trophy or only giving the winners trophies? Are we teaching them something that's going to have an implication later on in life? Maybe. I don't know. But, but it is correlated. <laughs> um, Free-range kids. Some people may remember a mother that was arrested several years ago for allow, allowing her daughter to play at the park, her nine-year-old daughter to play at the park Without, a, uh, without her mother being there. Other parents were there, other kids were playing, they had programs at the park. Um, but some other mother found that this girl didn't have her mom with her. They call Child Protective Services, they arrest the mother, she's in jail for 22 days, her daughter gets taken into Child Protective Services all to protect the child. Um, this created an uproar among many people. Other people thought that that was perfectly justified and that it was inappropriate for her to allow her daughter to play unsupervised. So we asked about it on one of our surveys. And we, we asked about a, a number of different ranges, but I've picked 12-year-olds right here because we really get the greatest split. Um, should parents be allowed to let their 12-year-olds play at public parks unsupervised? Libertarians and liberals this time are similar, um, in which they think that they should be allowed to play unsupervised. Conservatives split half and half. Again, communitarians, just like the trophy question, communitarians stand out. They think that even 12-year-old kids should be supervised at parks, and they're unique. All right. When are kids old enough to take on a variety of different responsibilities? 
You may have heard that textbooks or child um, or small children's books from you know, the 1920s or 1930s will, will describe children, five-year-olds, six-year-olds, going to the store to pick up a gallon of milk for their mother. Um, and today, that parent would be arrested for letting their child walk alone on the street like that. Um, but it tells us a lot about your values to ask about when are children old enough to be able to do various things. So I'm, I'm showing you three here, to cook, to mow the lawn, and to have a part-time job. We see a pattern. Libertarians across all the different, we asked for about 10 of them. I'm only showing you three. Libertarians always picked, on average, they um, responded with a younger age across all the different activities. Um, communitarians picked the oldest age. So to cook, libertarians think that the, um, on average, libertarians think that children should be able to start cooking when they're 11. For communitarians, it's 13. Um, so again, this by itself maybe doesn't tell us that much, but when you combine it all together, we definitely are seeing a pattern. Now, this question isn't explicitly about how you, or how you raise your kids or, or what you teach your children, um, but I love this question nonetheless because it's one of those interesting thought questions. Who is familiar with a man by the name of William Blackstone who wrote the Commentaries of England? A few, okay. Um, so he, in a way, kind of codified the British common law in a series of books called the Commentaries on the Laws of England. And in that, he, he kind of states that the way the law, the British law, um, tr um, what types of heirs are they more comfortable with? He said that it would be better to have 10 guilty men go free than to imprison one innocent man. Benjamin Franklin went further and said it would be better to have a, um, a hundred guilty men go free than to imprison just one innocent man. So um, we asked a similar question. We're not doing the 10 to 1 or t uh, 100 to 1 ratio, but we asked people, what do you think would be worse? 20,000 people in prison who are actually innocent or 20,000 people not in prison who are actually guilty? Um, we see that libertarians and liberals are the most likely to say that it would be worse to punish innocents. Conservatives also agree. Communitarians, though, a majority of communitarians say that it would be worse um, to not punish the guilty. In fact, just kind of an interesting factoid here, um, if you look at Donald Trump supporters versus Ted Cruz supporters, 65% um, of Ted Cruz, Cruz supporters says it's worse to imprison innocent people opposite for Trump supporters, 52% say it's worse to let guilty people to go free. I think that tells us a lot about the division within the Republican Party. Similar on the Democratic side, Bernie Sanders people were like Ted Cruz supporters. Hillary Clinton split half and half, but slightly more on, in favor of protecting innocence. Okay. So I've shown you a lot of data. I apologize for all the data, but I think it's just there's, there's so much interesting stuff out there. And I hope that you've noticed some patterns. Communitarians across issues and child-rearing questions tend to take a similar view in that they want more government intervention, stronger parental involvement. Um, libertarians tend to take the, less, the opposite approach of less government involvement in economics um, and social issues they're more skeptical of government surveillance and intervention abroad. And sometimes 
they go together with, the, uh, some, and like I've said, conservatives sometimes go with libertarians, sometimes they go with communitarians, and so forth. Now, in political science, people will often say this is just, these people are inconsistent. Um, the fact that sometimes libertarians agree with conservatives and that sometimes libertarians agree with liberals, that's just because they're inconsistent and they're not paying attention. If only they had more political information and we could enlighten them, they would know that that's not how, it, how it's supposed to work. Um, I disagree. I think that the differences between these groups of, of communitarians, liberals, conservatives, and libertarians are real and important. And I think one way that we can try to better understand it is using moral foundations theory, which was developed by social psychologist Jonathan Haidt, who Tom mentioned earlier. Um, it's a theory that was initially developed to study morality across cultures, um, but can also be applied to helping us understand the political landscape here at home. And again, it's distorted. Um, <clears throat> the theory um, basically is this that through evolution, humans developed um, several different psychological systems of dealing with the world. And that these systems give rise to what we call moral intuitions, our gut instincts about what's right and wrong. When I mentioned the question about Bitcoin, what's your gut instinct about Bitcoin when you first found out about it? Did you think it was cool or did you think it was scary? What's your gut instinct? So that through evolution, we developed several different psychological systems of being able to deal or to, to be able to judge what we think is right and wrong. Thus far, um, social psychologists have identified six of these systems, six of these psychological systems, which um, we call moral foundations. And it's upon these moral foundations, they're almost like taste buds, we build, cultures build their own moralities, and individuals also kind of have their own unique moralities. So the way to think about this is imagine six dials, or six um, dials on a stereo system, like an equalizer. And some dials are turned up really high, and some dials are turned um, really low, and some are in the middle. And I'm gonna start by going through the psychological nodes that have been identified, or the moral foundations, one by one. I'm going to explain to you what they are, and then how we measure them. And then we're going to look at how each of the four groups um, evaluates each of those. I really wish this would not be distorted. <laughs> OK. So the first foundation is the care-harm foundation. I think the best way to think of this foundation is just empathy. Um, it's the psychological tendency to feel empathy or to have compassion for suffering. Notice that empathy is, is not the same as sympathy. This tends to manifest in politics as concern for marginalized or vulnerable, for vulnerable groups of people, which often tends to lead to support for um, more redistribution in government programs, but not always. And an example question that we might use to measure this sensitivity is something like this on the, on the right here. Compassion for those who are suffering is the most crucial virtue. Do you agree or disagree with that statement? Now what we do is we ask several different questions, maybe six questions, maybe 10 questions, and we average everyone's responses to those several questions, and that kind of gives us an idea of people's propensity to be very concerned or to prioritize that particular moral foundation. 
When we look at how libertarians, conservatives, liberals, and communitarians answer these questions compared to the average American. So you see here that x-axis, that represents the average American response. So bars above the line mean that that group gave an above average response, and bars below the line gave a below average response. It does not mean that that group does not care about that issue. It just means that when they answered our questions, they gave, um, on the agreed to disagree scale of one to seven, they tended to give lower responses. Libertarians and conservatives tended to score below average. Liberals and communitarians scored above average. Now I know everyone's gonna say they're very empathetic in this room. The point is, is compared to liberals in answering this question. I mean, if you were to be asked this question, do you agree or disagree that compassion for those who are suffering is the most crucial virtue? I know a lot of people would say it's a top virtue, but is it the most crucial, crucial virtue? So perhaps a liberal would give the answer of seven on a scale of one to seven, and a libertarian gives us, um, the answer of six. Um, and that could produce this chart. To the second one. Fairness cheating. Here, we monitor if people are getting what they deserve, and we shun or punish cheaters. So this is the psychological tendency to emphasize. It's really about accountability. It's the idea of should you reap what you sow? What is fairness? Is fairness getting what you need, or is fairness getting what you earn? And if you define fairness as getting what you earn, you probably score high on this foundation. Um, this tends to be manifest in political life as opposition to bailouts for businesses and individuals. Um, low tax rates, don't punish success, that, that slogan, and so forth. And an example question that we use on a scale of one to seven from you know, agree, disagree, people who produce more should be rewarded more than those who just tried hard. Or the world would be a better place if we let unsuccessful people fail and suffer the consequences. Here, we see libertarians and conservatives score above average on this, on this foundation. Liberals and communitarians score below average on this foundation. We're gonna pull, we'll pull this all together in a few slides. Liberty oppression. This foundation, I think, is really about individual autonomy. It's a psychological tendency to resist being controlled or dominated. Uh, the, the, the phrase, don't tread on me. We resent restrictions um, on our personal choices. And we see this showing up in public life in a variety of different ways. Um, but essentially, uh, being tolerant of diverse lifestyles, people who are different, um, and so forth. An example question would be on a scale of one to seven, agree, disagree. I think everyone should be free to do as they choose so long as they don't infringe upon the freedom of others. Or, more severe, people should be free to do dangerous and self-destructive things as long as they don't put others at risk. Tethers at risk, apparently. <laughs> so who scores above average on this? Libertarians score way above average on this question. So you know we're doing something right <laughs> when, in terms of how I uh, measured our four groups, given that these are our results. Communitarians score the lowest. Again, no surprise, they were the only group that thought government should be enforcing morality on society. Conservatives, you'll notice, you don't see a bar. And that's because they're right at the average. So some conservatives score above average, some score below average, but if you take all those conservatives together, 
they're right at the national median. Liberals score just slightly, just slightly above average, but not a lot. The next three I'm going to explain together because they go together as the foundations of social conservatism, largely. The first one is the authority subversion foundation. We value order and structure in social life. So this is the psychological tendency to uh, respect authority figures because it's the view that authority figures bring order and structure to, to social life. And it's that above average need for order that really draws us to these leaders. Um, and people who score high on this foundation are gonna be very averse to anyone or anything that perpetuates chaos and disorder. So this is, these are not your protesters. <laughs> these are the anti-protesters, the people that are annoyed with the protesters um, because they feel like they're creating chaos. So an example question is respect for authority is something that all children need to learn. Or the latter question about do you, do you um, disagree with your command, or if you were a soldier, do you disagree with your commanding officer's orders? if you disagreed with them, or would you obey because that's your duty? Um, so like I said, I'm gonna explain this one with the next two because they go together um, as the foundations of social conservatism. Loyalty betrayal. So this is the psychological tendency to value group me uh, membership. We tend to keep track of who is us and who is not. Um, we like tribal rituals and we hate traitors. Um, it, particularly when we feel like our group is under attack. Now this can show up in political life in many different ways. I'm sure you can imagine several, but one more positive one would be patriotism. Um, each of these have good and bad sides, by the way. Um, next, um, excuse me, an example question would be, it's more important to be a team player than to express oneself. Do you agree or disagree? And then the <clears throat> Sixth foundation, the Sanctity Degradation Foundation. This was a, a really, I think, a very interesting um, moral foundation to think about. It's a psychological tendency to view some things in this world as imbued with a spiritual essence or sacred value. So, for instance, the American flag, is it a piece of cloth or is it a sacred symbol of our country and of liberty? If someone were to take the American flag and throw it on the ground and stomp on it right now, would that bug you? Or would it not bother you at all? Now, some people get fired for doing that if they do it at school. You've heard probably of teachers giving a lesson on symbolism and they throw the flag down and they stomp on it. Um, other people think it's, they have no visceral reaction to that whatsoever. Um, part of that is this difference in moral proclivities. Um, so authority, the, the foundations of authority, loyalty, and sanctity. These three foundations tend to go together, not always, but they tend to go together as the values of social conservatism. And the function that they play is that they um, bind groups together in cohesive units. So when um, humans lived in, in, in herding societies where you had to ward off attacks from um, other tribes, these foundations were very useful in making sure you stayed alive because it kept your group together, it brought order to the group, and you had tribal rituals that kind of brought everything together. But in commercial societies, we tend these have kind of shifted. Um, there's less emphasis on them than there used to be, and there's more emphasis on the fairness, cheating, liberty, and care foundations in commercial societies. Um, so I'm gonna show all three of these together 
for each of the four groups. Libertarians tend to score below average on authority, loyalty, and sanctity, probably why some people in this room said that they found, when I asked the question about the flag being thrown on the ground, no one had any react, some people had no reaction. Um, you score below average on that. Um, conservatives and communitarians, you'll notice, score above average on those uh, moral foundations. And liberals, like libertarians, score below average. Now, I want to emphasize that there really is no right or wrong answer. Um, each foundation has a good side and a bad side. Um, it's all about your priorities. And I think if we start to view differing political groups through the lens of their moral priorities, we realize that each individual person, most people are well-intended. They really are doing what they think is morally correct. We just may disagree that those morals should be priorities. Uh, and we also may disagree with the empirical evidence um, when those uh, moral principles are enacted into legislation of some kind. So I now want to put it all together. Let's look at all four of our groups, libertarians, conservatives, liberals, and communitarians. And I want us to look, this is the same thing we saw, but I want us to really look at the bars that are above um, the average line. I want us to look at what foundations does each group primarily rely on. Now, please keep in mind that everybody values all of these foundations to some degree or another. It's about emphasis. It's about priority. Libertarians primarily prioritize accountability and autonomy. Conservatives prioritize also, like libertarians, accountability, but also authority, loyalty, and sanctity. This is one of the reasons why libertarians and conservatives go together on economic issues, because this issue of accountability is so critical to a lot of those economic questions. Should every, get a, should every kid get a trophy regardless of what they do, or should only the winners get a trophy? Should you reap what you sow? Though that brings these two together, but on other issues very differently. Uh, conservatives are not as concerned about liberty as our libertarian group. Liberals. They prioritize empathy and a little bit of liberty, but it's really empathy that they primarily rely upon when deciding what is moral. Communitarians, similar to liberals, and they emphasize or they prioritize empathy, but they also emphasize authority, loyalty, and sanctity, like our conservatives. So just like the issues that I showed you, here, liberals and conservatives Libertarians and conservatives share a desire for accountability. Conservatives and communitarians share a desire to emphasize respect for authority, loyalty, and sanctity. Um, and libertarians, they're similar to liberals, and there is some similarity in concern about liberty, but it's largely that they de-emphasize um, authority, loyalty, and sanctity foundations, and thus don't find it necessary to implement government regulations and to pass legislation that would enforce those values on society because they are less relevant to their moral judgments. So now I want to bring it all together. We've talked about demographics. We've talked about issue positions. We've talked about morality. There's a lot we've gone through. How does this help us predict Vote choice in the election. 
I think you can tell a lot about a person's value and psychological profile based on their preferred presidential candidate. And in this election cycle, there were so many different choices, especially on the Republican side. People would tell me what candidate they liked best, and I could almost tell you what their moral profile looks like, uh, which is kind of fun, um, kind of nerdy, but fun. Um, so let's start with Donald Trump. What I'm going to be showing you are the results from a statistical test called a logit regression, but I've turned it into a picture. <laughs> Arrows that are going up means that there was a positive that that variable, such as a high respect for authority, loyalty, and sanctity, positively uh, predicts voting for Donald Trump. However, scoring high on empathy, empathy is negatively related to voting for Donald Trump, and that's why the arrow was going down. So arrows going up means positively predicting a vote. Arrows going down means um, voting against that person. Okay, so what this tells us is that of the four groups, being a liberal, being a conservative, a libertarian or communitarian, none of those uh, conservative, neither conservatives or libertarians were in any way uh, likely to vote for Donald Trump more than the average person. But liberals are a lot less likely to vote for Donald Trump. We see that people who score high on respect for authority, loyalty, and sanctity, those are our binding foundations, um, they're way more likely to vote for Trump. But people who score high on empathy are voting against Trump. His voters tend to score low on compassion. Um, his voters are also more likely to be white and have less education, which is something we've seen in the news, but we have statistical data to um, back that up because we're also controlling for a host of other demographic variables that could perhaps explain it. These are what come out as statistically significant. Ted Cruz. Ted Cruz is significantly predicted by people who score high on accountability. Um, so basically, if you care a lot about accountability, you were significantly more likely to be voting for Ted Cruz. Maybe you didn't, but just statistically more likely, more male. And interestingly, he attracted voters from the libertarian and the conservative bucket. In fact, he was the only Republican candidate that was capable of doing that. Donald Trump is in no way predicted by being in either the conservative or libertarian buckets. Rand Paul is predicted by being in the libertarian bucket. Um, a vote for Ted Cruz is predicted by being, or excuse me, uh, Marco Rubio was predicted by being in the conservative bucket, but only Ted Cruz got both. And if you're liberal, far less likely to be voting for Ted Cruz. Bernie Sanders, there's a lot on here, so I'm going to try to go through it step by step here. People who vote for Bernie Sanders are statistically more likely to score high on empathy, low on accountability, very low. Um, the socialism thing. High, high on liberty, um, which is really interesting. People say, well, how can he, you know, how can people care about liberty and vote and like socialism? It's because liberty is about autonomy and proportionality or and accountability is the thing that gets people to not like socialism usually. Um, and then people who score high on, on authority, loyalty, and sanctity vote, were less likely to vote for Bernie Sanders. They are less evangelical, more male, younger, not high income, which helps explain the high tax rates were, were not a problem for them, and liberals. Liberals far more likely to vote for Bernie Sanders. Now, let's contrast Bernie, a, a vote for Bernie Sanders with a vote for Hillary Clinton. She really is disliked by conservatives. <laughs> 
it was the largest coefficient of all the regressions, uh, meaning that it was just a big impact. Um, conserva the conservative bucket despises her. Um, that's why it has such a big arrow. Um, libertarians aren't happy about her either. Um, but notice that she not only gets the liberal bucket, but she is also significantly predicted by the communitarian bucket. So she has two buckets that are solidly in her camp right now. Donald Trump actually didn't have any of them. He didn't really attract one group. Um, her group is also significantly uh, more likely to score high on empathy. They're older, more non-white, more female. So that's, the, uh, that's predicting vote choice in the 2016 election. Um, Cruz gets the libertarian and conservative buckets, statistically is more likely to get those buckets, and Hillary is more likely to get the liberal and communitarian buckets. So putting this all together, we've shown that there are at least four clusters of voters instead of two. Now you could probably find six, eight, 10, you could do a cluster analysis and find 16 little groups in, in the electorate, but the point is, is that there are more than two groups uh, there, there's more than liberal and conservative in the electorate, and if you don't feel like you are represented by either the Republicans or the Democrats, the liberals or the conservatives, you are not alone, and you're not inconsistent, and it's not like you don't have enough information. It's that um, those parties don't re represent you. Those groups are not sufficient to explain the electorate. Um, and that's why we see libertarians tend to go together with conservatives on certain issues and go, to, to go together with liberals on other issues. Um, Libertarians are unique in scoring high on liberty and autonomy, and only liberals tend to share this to a small degree, but libertarians tend to share accountability, a concern for accountability with conservatives. Overall, I think, this is my view, looking at the data, that the libertarian group, they are an untapped electoral force because neither party has mobilized them. While the Democrats tend to kind of They've captured that communitarian bucket. They've captured the liberal bucket. Republicans have captured that conservative bucket. Even if they're reluctant about the major party, about Donald Trump being the nominee, they're falling into line. But that libertarian bucket doesn't, is not falling into line. Um, it's not solidly in the Republican or the Democratic buckets. I think that either major party could gain significantly in the polls if they found a way to, one, they can't turn off their existing voters, but to try to do a little bit more to appeal to that libertarian bucket. I also think that that means that for those that kind of identify as socially liberal and fiscally conservative, you're not alone, and you're no more in the minority as those in the conservative or liberal groups that much. And if you mobilize, you actually can make a difference because the People who decide the outcomes of politics are not majorities. They're people who are highly motivated, um, get involved, and try to take the driver's seat um, in the election, the electoral process. So thank you very much. I'll now take questions. <laughs> thank you. Uh, my question is, um, do political parties actually use this approach? Because as you said, Donald Trump is not in either buckets. So he, he seems like to be the definition of a populist. And he might look more at a, an approach where he wouldn't use uh, the fact how people would self-define themselves, but how, how their consistency actually is on the issues and not mainly on the, the yeah, being part of a group or another. And uh, yeah, the follow-up question of this is, um, how many 
where share of the population is actually consistently libertarian. And uh, how, what is the proportion of libertarians in this case who, who are maybe schizophrenic and disavowed conservatives, liberals, or even statists? Mm -hmm. Well, okay, I would first ask how many people are consistent conservatives? How many people are consistent liberals? We often, when you meet a conservative and they tell you, I think we should, I love Social Security, we shouldn't do anything to change it, you think nothing of them being conservative. If you meet a conservative that says, I don't believe in the idea that government is in the business of um, retirement planning, um, you think nothing of it, of them being conservative. The same thing for liberals. Liberals and conservatives are not held to that same standard of ideological rigidity of like a, a test. They have to agree with certain things and disagree, but libertarians often are. And I think that that is an unhelpful view um, when thinking about these general tents, these general buckets about how you appeal to people. So if you're only looking for people who agree on all the different issues on the line items, you're never going to find them. Um, the greatest minority is the is one, right? <laughs> so if you employ the same methodology of identifying conservatives and liberals, you tend to find similar shares of libertarians. I've seen this done by a variety of political scientists. Um, I can suggest after, the, after this, um, I can su suggest that to you. When you look at self-identified libertarians, there's far fewer because a lot of people out there who are moderates, conservatives, and liberals actually fit in that libertarian bucket, but they feel uncomfortable using the word because it's associated with, um, they just associate it with something other than what they really um, believe. They think it's extreme, it's rigid, and so forth. But it's actually, it doesn't have to be. It actually could be a big bucket of broadly fiscally conservative, socially liberal. There are a lot of people that fit in that tent. And you're more likely to convince people when you feel like you're starting from common ground. So do political parties actually use the four-cluster uh, approach, or do they, or like, for example, Donald Trump, doesn't he actually really care about Oh, Donald Trump is doing no research, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> but I think that um, really, the political yeah, parties really. are starting to learn about this methodology and are trying to make an effort at doing that. But it often, it, it tends to work better when people organize bottom-up and convince the political parties that appealing to voters like them works, um, that's much better. Um, proving that you can win elections, that's the best way to get, a or to, to get the Democrats or the Republicans to care about you is to show that your brand of politics wins. But that only works if you mobilize and you show up on election day, which a lot of libertarians don't. They're a lot less likely to vote. Anyway, so we have to move on to the next. Thank you. Hi, I'm... I'm Eric Gomez, also from uh, the Cato Institute. And I think the million dollar question now that we've narrowed it down uh, to Donald Trump for the Republicans, Hillary Clinton for the Democrats, and obviously Gary Johnson, Jill Stein, what have you, is there a good chance that the people who are disaffected by Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump turn to a third party candidate and make them viable, or does it, or I guess, what do you see sort of going forward? What could be some likely things that could happen based off of this research now that we have fewer candidates in the pool? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, with this election, all things are possible. Because <laughs> things that seemed impossible became possible. Um, I think it's unlikely that a third party uh, manifests in some sort of lasting way. Um, I think that the... Uh, 
it's certainly within the realm of possibility is that a third party candidate wins several states and throws it into the House. Unlikely, but that is certainly within the realm of possibility. What I don't think is likely is that you have some third party that competes with the two major parties because the way our system is set up, um, first past the post, single member districts, we don't have PR, that's the system that we have, that creates two parties. And they're almost like shells. There's a lot of research that's gone into this. The two parties are like shells. And the people who take the driver's seat in those parties define what that party's all about. I mean, just think about the parties on race and how they have shifted over the years. Think about the parties on social issues. The Republicans actually used to be more pro-choice in the 50s and 60s. And that only really shifted in the 1990s when social conservatives mobilized and used the Republican party to get their platform out there. Um, so it's usually not through third parties. It's not through a third party that that happens, but a third party can make, can incentivize one of the two major parties to try to absorb them in order to win. Okay. Uh, John Early from uh, Ridgefield, Connecticut. Um, so I've got a couple nerdy questions for you. And your mumbled apologies for being nerdy. You can thank guys like me who 50 years ago were born in the crucible of behavioral uh, science. So, um, First is, what's the sample size, just so I can evaluate the distances roughly? Um, sure. So all of these surveys, all the data I presented to you, they came from several different surveys. They were all na nationally representative surveys using highly reputable firms, um, like the same firm that the Pew Research Center uses or YouGov, which CBS and The Economist uses. They are all sample sizes of 1,000 to 2,000 people, um, depending on uh, kind of the topic that we were looking at. Okay. Um, then the, on your... Um, your, your, your social values dimension. You know, some other earlier research uh, that's been involved suggests that there's probably two components the way you were measuring it. Because as I understand it, your, your question for identifying was self-identified that were open to alternative lifestyles and so on and so forth, rather than actually measuring their attitude toward openness generally. So you got two things going on there, traditional and shall we say the new politically correct uh, preferred Verse, and the other dimension that's in there is the degree to which I'm exclusionary. I've either got the traditional exclusionary or I've got a, some new set exclusionary. Did you do anything to test whether or not you've really got two dimensions going on there and the effect of them? That's an excellent question. Um, I'm even thinking of the test that we could run to see that. Um, and the way, what I showed you today, it was strictly about what should government's role be in the economic sphere and the social sphere. It was not about openness to change or new experiences because you can imagine a person who personally doesn't really like a lot of change, they're not really open to new foods and so forth, but they also don't want to impose their views on other people. So they would say the government should not promote traditional values in society, but personally they are pretty traditional. Yeah, but I'm, I'm getting to a little more specific. Even in that sphere, when you classify them into the four quadrants, you know, one of the dimensions was social policy. And in there, there really are two dimensions, whether they prefer the traditional values versus some new set of values versus being open to values wh wherever they fall along the... I the bet there is absolutely those groupings that you're that you're describing. I have not done the statistical test to check that because we ha we kind of lack the data at this point. Yeah. But on a future survey, we can look into putting questions okay. like that to be able to see if those groups manifest. Mm -hmm. Hi, uh, I'm Brendan from Long Island, New York. I've got a comment and a question. Uh, it seemed very strange that 30 to 40 percent of libertarians would be uh, in favor of banning Bitcoin just based on the nature of what Bitcoin is. 
um, just seemed kind of weird. Uh, and secondly, um, one of your slides said that about 8% of liberals support uh, Donald Trump for the presidency, uh, which I also th thought was surprising because uh, I'm, I'm working on my uh, district's uh, congressman's re-election campaign. And one of the things we do is uh, analyze survey data. And overwhelmingly, um, union Democrats that have voted union uh, or voted Democrat all their life uh, are supporting Donald Trump in the 2016 presidency. Uh, so I was just sort of curious if you had any data on um, the proportion of union Democrats that make up like liberals or. Um, yes. Um, so you're probably seeing communitarians, the communitarian bucket. Um, they, I suspect a lot of them would favor immigration restrictions as well as, you know, economically progressive policies. Um, and they go in that communitarian bucket. And as you may have noticed when I showed that, um, there were more communitarians that liked Donald Trump than liked Bernie Sanders. Um, and his support among that group has not waned over time. Um, so I think that's what you're seeing. The other point that you made that I'd like to just quickly address is that when you see that libertarians don't agree with what you think should be the libertarian position on every question, that is to be expected. Because, like I said earlier, when you meet a conservative, you don't have a litmus test of questions that they must answer correctly to be a conservative. It's more of like kind of an aggregation. You know, if you agree with a certain number of issues, you're more likely to be a conservative than a liberal. The same thing is true for libertarians. Now, if you want to get a really like ideologically pure, consistent group of any ideological stripe, you're probably going to get a several, like two to three percent, maybe four percent of liberals, conservatives, or libertarians. But that's just not how I think we often think about politics. Is that they tend to be those bigger tents. But when you look at those, um, the moral proclivities of those groups, there's no doubt there's a there are big differences between those groups. So they may overlap on certain things, but at their core, their predispositions are such that that group is the most likely to be swayed by libertarian arguments than any of the four. Thank you. I, I wanted to give an observation, uh, Paul Steger. I wanted to get uh, give an observation and get your reaction as a pro. Um, and that is, um, I, from the get-go, couldn't stand Ted Cruz, loved John Kasich, and I couldn't figure it out. Well, you just answered it today. John's big on empathy. That's just oh, yeah. an obvious yes, trait. Yes, yes. <laughs> and, and now I see why I couldn't stand either Cruz or Trump. Um, is it, Would you think, based on your polling, that a libertarian who does have some empathy but who's not going to bank or... Uh, deplete the bank, okay, our taxes, and who's going to have some common sense redistribution, would that be a perhaps a little secret formula for a libertarian to succeed in the future? It's certainly possible because we haven't really seen it that much yet on the national stage. Um, I think a lot of politics is the rhetorical style, many people are talking about Michelle Obama's speech at the DNC convention. It was a beautiful speech. It was just very well done. But the, she has said hardly anything about policy. I probably disagree with hardly anything in her speech. But yet we're all talking about it. Politics is a lot about positioning and signaling, showing that I care about you. And that because I care about you, I support these types of policies. I believe that the free market um, helps improve the lives of everyone, not just rich people. Like using that kind of uh, phraseology, I think is more useful than just like emphasizing um, that we want to do these things for their own rights. Like we want to lower taxes because that's just 
taxes are bad. I think that's not useful. But using an empathetic lens to explain to people, we want this because we believe it can help you and me and everyone, I think could go a long way. And we haven't seen a whole lot of that, a little bit, but not a lot of it lately. Okay. Did you do any in your surveys on green and energy and environment? And if so, what did you learn? Um, not a lot on that question. We did ask about the Keystone Pipeline. Um, and the only group that opposed building the Keystone Pipeline were liberals. Everybody, all the other the three other groups supported it. But I haven't, we haven't done a lot on that issue. That's a good question. And I hope that that's something we can do more of in the future. Thank you.